Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and blessed frozen hallelujahs to you this morning. By the, word, by the way, that word hallelujah will be absent here very soon for the next 40 or so days. So think of hallelujah today. Hallelujah, we're here and we made it. Thank you, Lord. The Lord be with you. In my Tuesday evening uh, confirmation class, adult confirmation class, a question came up about the changing of the colors of the banners and these pyramids, these beautiful crafted pieces that hang from the lectern and the altar and the pulpit. It, it reminds me, sometimes we take for granted that everyone who comes in here in the church knows why certain colors and banners are used throughout the church's liturgical year, which is different than the calendar year out in the secular world. Banners and pyramids and their colors reflect the seasons of the church, the observance of certain festivals and other biblical events. Red, the color red is used on Palm Sunday and Reformation Day and the day of Pentecost is a very spirit-filled day, fiery-filled day. Green is used in the longest season of the year, the Sundays after Pentecost. This period is also called in the church the ordinaries. We go about the ordinary work of planting and sowing seeds and the gospel and growing the church and growing in faith. The color green represents that. As we get into Advent, there's a blue, a royal blue color, a kingly color, as we await the arrival of the prophet, the priest, and the king, our Lord Jesus Christ, and his birth. Purple, a very penitential royal color, but very penitential in nature, appears very soon as you get into the Lenten season. Black is used on Good Friday and often on Ash Wednesday. And white is used at Easter and Christmas and on special occasions to call our attention to the observance of certain events in the life and ministry of Jesus. The color white is used on the eve of the circumcision and naming of Jesus. It's used on the Epiphany, the manifestation of Jesus, and the Magi coming. It's used in the baptism of our Lord. It's used on Monday, Thursday, and the resurrection of our Lord, on Ascension, on Holy Trinity Sunday, on All Saints Sunday, and on the Sunday that we celebrate today, the transfiguration of our Lord. You see, the sequence of events in the life of the ministry of Jesus are important to us to know and to contribute to and participate in for many reasons. One of them has to do with his pastoral relationship to his disciples, which ultimately extends to us as his disciples today. Jesus, in this time, was bringing his disciples along in their faith so that when he was, after he was crucified and resurrected and ascended, they would have a foundation upon which to build their lives. We are already past that period, but that sequence of events in Jesus' life and his ministry serve the same purpose, to build a foundation upon which we live our lives in Christ. This morning is Transfiguration Sunday. If you look up in the dictionary, you're going to get a lot of different interpretations of what it means. Here's a few that I found. Dictionary Tom defines the term as the act of transfiguring. <laughs> That's not exactly very helpful. Another one is not very revealing is the state of being transfigured. 
Okay, that's hardly illuminating, pun intended. And this one gets me really, I get really off on this one. Church festival observed on August the 6th. Uh, Okay, that's six months from now. Did we make a mistake in the lectionary three-year series and we messed up somewhere? No. For some reason, the dictionary cites August 6th as the Feast of the Transfiguration as observed by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Go figure. There is one definition, though, that does illuminate the meaning. The supernatural and glorified change in appearance of Jesus on the mountain. That word transfiguration is, is translated in most English translations as metamorphite, from which we get metamorphosis. So on the mountain, Jesus was actually undergoing a metamorphosis. That term transfiguration comes from two of the Greek words, meta, meaning to change, and morpha, meaning to transform. So literally, the word means to change into another form, to change the outside to match the inside. Jesus was being transformed and manifested inside and out for the world to see. Now, I'm not sure any of those meanings are going to make it easier for any Sunday school teacher to teach to a child. Just like Holy Trinity is not easy to teach, right? We can't teach to little children in in any particular way how important that mountaintop experience is and remains for our lives. I know this from special lessons because I remember a Sunday school teacher was teaching years ago on the same subject, the Christ Transfiguration, and wanted his students to be very serious about it. So he brought out the book of Mark chapter 9 and started reading. And as he was reading, he noticed this really contorted and confused face on one of the little children. And she said, Johnny. He said, yes, ma'am. Why don't you tell us where Jesus is in this story? And Johnny looks up and says, well, he's on the mountain. And she said, that's right, Johnny, that's perfect. Now, do you remember why Jesus is up there? Johnny thought about it for a moment. He says, well, I think that's where the arithmetic class was. What? What arithmetic class? Well, the Bible said he was going up on the mountain to figure. See how hard it is to tell people, and children especially, about things like the transfiguration. But it's easy to describe the event, isn't it? Mark says his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach. You can really bleach things white, and this is whiter than that. Peter goes up there, and he's overcome with the sight of this transfigured Jesus, so much so that he just wants to stay on the mountain forever. Moses and Elijah, who are dead for hundreds of years, appear alongside Jesus. And that's all that happens, right? No, there's always more to an event than Jesus than what meets the eye. There's more to the story. What does it mean that Moses and Elijah were there? Why did Peter act the way he did? Why did Jesus tell the disciples not to say anything? Some of these things are fleshed out in our text for today, but there's always a backstory to why these things occur. And you don't get it if you don't read in context. I preach this all the time. You see a bucket of messages like today's, you've got to go before and after 
to really understand why this event is occurring at this time and this moment and the nature of what it's about. In the verses just before Mark's gospel lesson for today, Jesus is on the road to Caesarea Philippi with his, te- with his, his disciples and he asks to them casually, who do people say that I am? And the disciples chime in, you're John the Baptist, or others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked it very personally, but who do you say I am? And it got really silent except for one person who was always liked to speak up whether he knew what he was saying or not. Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. But then as they walked on, he decided it's time for some teaching. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Take that in if you're a disciple. Mark points out that Jesus said this plainly. Clearly, these were words that Jesus wanted them to hear. Mark says he said these things plainly. Plainly for those among the disciples like Peter who would cling to the expectation that Jesus was going to be this powerful warrior and conquering Messiah. That's not why he came. His kingdom is not here. But how did one of the disciples at least take that news? We're told that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Peter was not about to accept a suffering Messiah, at least not yet. In fact, he would not accept that until after Christ's resurrection. Jesus, being rebuked, turns to the other disciples and rebukes Peter right back. Get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And just six days after this event, Jesus gives Peter another valuable lesson. A lesson for all of us, really. A lesson that demonstrates the divine glory and power of the Son of God. The Son of Man. A lesson for all ages. Ages of the past, ages of the present and ages in the future. A lesson that reminded Peter then and that should humbly and contritely remind us to give thanks every single day, even if it's the likes of that which we will never understand. But to give thanks to God. This Jesus, who is fully human, freely chose death and resurrection for our sake and for our salvation. And his father's words, spoken at the climax of this monumental moment on the mountain, gives us all the direction we need in life, if we'll only read it and listen to it. Yet still today, there are a whole lot of Peters running around in the world. Many of us might be among them. We get caught up in the moment. We think we can do it all. We even find ourselves rebuking Jesus when things don't go our way or what we get is not what we want or what we expect. 
See, it's Peter's problem. On the moment there, on the mountain that day, Peter sought to seize the moment, to be in charge of that moment by offering to pitch tents so that they could stay the night and sit around a campfire and have marshmallows and talk with people who were dead for 700 years. Mark reminds us, he did not know what to say and why. Mark says, because they were terrified. Terrified. Who wouldn't be terrified? I can appreciate how terrified the disciples were. They had front row seats to a light show that eclipses any 4th of July fireworks anywhere in the world. The fireworks that are going on in our world right now with this raging pandemic, with the loss of our freedoms and the concurrent deadly spread and the loss of lives, these things terrify us today too. If you're not terrified by what's going on in the world, you're probably not breathing very well. It's terrible out there. But looking back at Peter's reaction, we tend to think it, his response was somewhat over, overreaching, somewhat silly, childish, pitch tense. How are you going to sleep with a light shining like that and two dead people around you? But Peter was struggling to handle what his eyes were witnessing. And don't make any excuses today. We struggle to, with the things that we see right now with our eyes. We're struggling to understand that. Aren't we? The church struggles today about how to deal with the terror of the virus and how to deal with what we see as the erosion of our republic, the nation for which we live in. It's frightening. It's agonizing. And it can be terrifying. And then Sunday comes. And the word of God comes. And for a moment, a blessed moment, the terror gives way to the joy and peace of being close to the world, close to God right here in his house, in our own mountaintop experience in a city where there ain't no mountains. You can't even get it to a hill around here. Here we come to pitch a tent and to be with Jesus. That's the transfiguration. It's a moment of glory on display. But the point of the transfiguration is not simply to display the glory of Jesus. It carries a message for us, a lesson, a life lesson. The real meaning of this event has its roots in what occurred just before Jesus was transfigured. He made those predictions of his suffering and his death and his resurrection for the first time to those disciples First time his closest circle would know exactly with certain knowledge what was going to happen to them. And even if they didn't understand it, they knew it. And right after that prediction, Christ goes on and tells them, you must take up your cross and follow me. As Christ was going to suffer, so also the disciples and we must suffer. But the thought of taking on a cross is not an image that we enjoy today. 
Can you imagine what it would have conjured up in the minds of the disciples who had no doubt seen many crosses with people on them during their time under Roman rule? I hardly doubt that any of us would not rather be celebrating rather than living a life of fear and grief. Thoughts of future grief and suffering and rejection and death confuse us. They frighten us just as they did the disciples. So some people today, like some people in Jesus' time, find that burden of the cross too much to bear. It is in that setting, my friends, it is in that context that Jesus, who would endure that grief, that suffering for the whole world, not just for one person, it is in that setting that Jesus went up on the mountain with Peter and James and John. So what is the meaning of this revelation of his glory? That moment. That day. Jesus gives us a hint by telling the disciples to wait until after the resurrection before they tell others. If they told others now, the meaning would be confusing and misunderstood. So the resurrection of Christ is the key to unlocking the meaning of the transfiguration. It means that the glory of Christ revealed on the mountain was the assurance of the end of his suffering. The result of that suffering is an end that is never in doubt. Christ would suffer and die, but he would rise again and ascend into glory. The majesty of the Son of God cannot be taken away. It was hidden for a time in the grave. Yes, but in the end it burst forth with light and life. It means that the glory of Christ is in his suffering. His whole life led to Jerusalem and Calvary. His flesh was conceived in the Blessed Virgin Mary so that it could be nailed to the cross for the atonement of your sins and mine. God became flesh so that God could die for you. We see in the transfiguration exactly who it would be who hung on that cross. It was this deity and glory that God allowed to be nailed to a tree to offer the one perfect sacrifice so valuable that only his blood could pay for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. In the brilliant wide of the transfiguration is the radiant truth of Jesus of Nazareth. Fully human, fully God, Dying for our sins. Our sins, unglorious, that sentence us to eternal shame and suffering, would be taken by Christ himself. The glorious one would become unglorious on the cross, become sin for us, so sin-filled that his father could not look at him or answer him when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet in that certain dying that lay ahead only moments later, and in loneliness on the cross that Jesus was hanging, there he would achieve his greatest glory, the purpose for which his glory took on human flesh, the purpose which would be fulfilled 
by his final words. It is finished. The glory of Christ on the mountain shows us the result of his suffering and its benefits for us. For we, like Paul said, are being transformed into the same image. As the death of Christ cleanses us from sin and death, so also his resurrection is the assurance that we shall be raised. We shall be as he is. We shall be glorious as shining stars in the sky because his glory shines on us. His glory is given to us and in us through the Holy Spirit. So the transfiguration does not reveal a Christ whom we must praise because he is so glorious and wonderful as if he is some work of art. His glory is found in his suffering, in his death, and in his resurrection. We praise him because he gives us the glory of his holiness and the promise of our glorious resurrection. Elijah and Moses appear on the mountain not as rock stars of a bygone era, but as testifiers of the glory of Christ, the culmination of the law and the work of the prophets. Moses, who parted the waters of the Red Sea. Elijah, who was taken up alive in a, to heaven into, with a whirlwind. And Christ, the Word, the Son of God, who redeems mankind. Water, Word, whirlwind. Moses and Elijah could not even redeem themselves. Their greatness was only that they pointed to the man in the middle. Christ Jesus, the light of life. For Christ is the fulfillment of all scripture. The voice of the prophets is speaking of Christ. The voice of the law is speaking of that which only Christ can fulfill. The law that you and I transgress in sin. More than that, it was Christ who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. It was Christ who spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. Because all the world is the voice of Christ. And the Father emphasizes that word from that cloud that day. The same cloud associated with God's power in the wilderness, with his overshadowing on the mountaintops, and over the tabernacle, and over the temple, and over the baptism of his son. When he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He is the mighty, majestic God who could crush us under his foot as we deserve. But instead he speaks to us words of gentleness and grace. He tenderly comforts us in the afflictions that he has warned us will come. He comforts us in the face of death by giving us eternal life in his word. And in return, he says, listen to my son. Everything is filled with the voice of Christ. He's the reason to come to church. He has suffered. He has died. He has risen for us, and he's done it all for us. In these times of terror and fear and uncertainty, we can find 
peace and the glorious treasures that God bestows upon us in Christ Jesus. And each moment, especially when we come here, pitch a tent and stay for as long as we can and bask in the glorious and brilliant light of the Lord, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen.